Look at the two of us, strangers. Every award season finds actors paying lip service to the idea that awards are essentially meaningless because one performance cannot truly be compared to another. Yet, when the nominations are made and the winner announced, those chosen ones are usually all tears and thank yous and declarations that this is the greatest moment of their careers. Except George C. Scott. Primarily a stage actor, Scott had a history of refusing both nominations and actual awards for his work. Yet, in 1971, he found himself nominated by the Academy for his portrayal of controversial General George S. Patton. He refused the nomination, as he had done previously when he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for The Hustler. The difference was this time, he won. But, he stuck to his guns and became the first actor to refuse an Academy Award. He hadn't even bothered to attend the ceremony, and while Daryl Zanuck accepted the award on his behalf, when the award was delivered to Scott himself, he promptly sent it back. Hello, and welcome to For Your Reconsideration. I'm Devin. And I'm Kyle. And... Like we do every week, we're going to be discussing previous year of the Academy Awards and deciding which picture was actually the best picture. And this year, <laughs> this week, we are discussing 1971. Uh, yeah. So the 1971 Oscars, which were honoring the films that were made and that were released in 1970. So let's get a little background of what was going on in 1970 because uh, you weren't there, right? I would know. I wasn't either. I was thought. Okay, so in 1970, uh, it was rough. Rough times happening in America. Uh, Nixon was the president, so there was that. Um, obviously, ongoing, the Vietnam War was kind of like in the midst of it. We were beginning to withdraw, but it was still going to be a couple of years before it was actually done. Um, and there are obviously a lot of protests. Like at that time in America, the support for the war was really starting to wane and there were more people thinking that it was a bad idea, partly, you know, because of the amount that we were, that they were seeing on television and reports and everything, which was obviously more war footage than, than Americans had seen prior to that time, which really led to a lot of anti-war movement and protests and violence here in America. Um, but some stuff that happened in 1970, on March 17th, um, that's when the United States Army charged 14 officers with suppressing information related to the Miley Massacre. Um, on April 10th, Paul McCartney announced that the Beatles were breaking up. On April 11th, Apollo 13 was launched toward the moon. Um, and there's a movie about that. <laughs> so that's why I included it in here a little we'll tiny into movies. Yes. But um so obviously an oxygen tank exploded, but they splashed down safely on April seventeenth. Oh, spoiler alert. I think most people know that. I think most people knew that when they were watching Apollo thirteen. I saw that movie in Birmingham, Alabama. What were you doing in Birmingham, Alabama? Visiting uh distant relatives. Oh. When I was like seven, six, seven, around that age. Yeah. Interesting. I also watched Top Gun that weekend for the first time. Wow. So it was just... You had like all classics. Yes. Weekend. Just checking off the list. Um, well, on May 4th, 1970, the Kent State shootings occur occurred. 
That's when four students at Kent State University in Ohio were killed and nine were wounded by the Ohio State National Guardsmen at a protest against the incursion in Cambodia. So that was a pretty, that was bad. It's a heavy year. Um, and we're not even done yet. One more thing. September 18th, yeah. Jimi Hendrix died at the age of 27 due to alcohol-related complications. And he was so, he's part of the 27 Club, obviously, but he's also part of this um, really quick thing. Like, Jim Morrison had just died a few months before, and then he died, and then like a month later, Janis Joplin died, all at the age of 27. Wow. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of in that little, like, middle part where a bunch of them went at once. Sure. I wouldn't say he would solely affect the year, but those three artists at the time in a row. Yeah. That's yeah, that's quite heavy for. I do think you know, like last two thousand sixteen, a lot of people were talking about how crazy it was because we lost so many big yeah. people. But I mean, like that is almost even crazier because one, they were all young people, and they were, we're all, all like, young at the time, right? Yeah. We're still losing those in that generation. Yeah, right. Like, like, so now it's not so crazy, honestly. It's not as crazy as. But we're gonna. It's 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 weird to think we're gonna keep losing icons. Yeah. Yeah. But you know. So a little history, a little background about 1970 in film. Um, the Boys in the Band by William Friedkin was Ooh. released. It is among the first major American motion pictures to revolve around gay characters and is often cited as a milestone in the history of queer cinema. And it is also thought to be the first mainstream American film to use the word cunt. Awesome. Fun facts for you. Yes. All right. I believe we have a similar fact coming up later in this show. Not for cunt, for, <laughs> for another word. Um, but yeah, that, that put William Freakin on the map, mm-hmm. finally. I mean, he was there before all. He had a presence on television, but this was certainly his uh, breakthrough directorial debut. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the top 10 highest grossing films of 1970. Coming in at number 10, Chariots of the Gods. Number 9, Torah, Torah, Torah. There's exclamation points. Number eight was Ryan's Daughter. Number seven, Little Big Man. What's that? Couldn't tell you. Cool. Couldn't tell you a thing about it. <laughs> uh, number six was The Aristocats. Awesome. I do enjoy that movie. Yeah. I didn't realize it was that old, honestly. I didn't either. I couldn't have guessed. Uh-uh. Number five was Woodstock. Whoa. So documentary was the fifth highest grossing film. They all wanted to relive it a year later. <laughs> all the people who couldn't go were like yeah, so what happened yeah. <laughs> uh number four was Patton. number three was mash number two airport and number one love story of course so we've got four of the five nominees coming in at one through four for highest yeah, grossing that's, movies that's pretty cool for sure yeah five easy pieces wasn't on that list yeah five easy pieces is, uh didn't do as well i guess okay I think it's understandable. All right. Moving in to the actual ceremony. Some fun facts for you. We already talked about how George C. Scott became the first actor to refuse his Oscar. Yeah. Um, he called, he had this quote about talking about the Academy Awards were a meat parade and it was all just for consumerism. Sure. Whatever. I mean, I say good for him. He said, you know, I'm not going to accept this work. This doesn't mean anything because dramatic performances can't be weighed against each other. And he like stuck to it. Yeah. Good for him is what I'm saying. Anywho. With her best supporting actress win, Helen Hayes became the first performer to win Oscars in both lead and supporting categories, having won Best Actress 38 years before for The Sin of Maldelon Claudette. 
She also has the record for having the biggest gap between acting wins. And she would go on to become the first woman to get an EGOT. Nice. That's the little, that's the stowaway lady from airport. I don't know if you know that. That's so awesome. Okay. Mm-hmm. But give us a, give us what the definition of an EGOT is for those who may not know. Oh, so an EGOT is when you win a competitive Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony EGOT. in your career. Very cool. Mm-hmm. It's not a large list, but. No, I, I went on, I was looking at the list of who it is and there's mm-hmm. not, it's not long at all. No. She was only the second person ever and the first woman, so. Sure. A lot of times more uh, like composers and singer-songwriters get that kind of award, right? Yeah. Richard Rodgers was them. the first one because he, you know, obviously did a lot of musicals and stuff. And, like, you know, um, who's the guy? Like Mike Nichols has yeah. one because he won, he won he a bunch of Tonys. Everything. Yeah. And then he had his little uh, improv duo for the Grammy. They won for Best Comedy Album. Mm-hmm. Grammys are... It seems like it'd be harder, but they have so many <laughs> awards for Grammys. Sure. A lot of people get it because they narrate um, books, books on tape that oh, they wrote. that's interesting. Because mm-hmm. okay. that's Audrey Hepburn has an EGOT because she narrated a children's book and won a Grammy for it. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting, too, because, like, Mike Nichols is probably one of few who won their Emmy first. Or his, gra- his Grammy first, rather. Yeah. Like, he won his Grammy far before he even started his career where he would win everything else. Yeah, that's really <laughs> – that's so true. Because he, like, changed kind of lanes yeah. that he was – Exactly. <laughs> he was just doing the uh, the Chicago improv acting on stage in New York with uh, Blaine May. And then that's how he got his, their Grammy. But then later he became a stage director and obviously film director. Mm-hmm. I love Mike Nichols. I know you do. Mel Brooks has an EGOT, too, because he got – he won Emmys for writing for – uh show shows and then for what sid caesar's show of shows oh, okay and then um obviously he got his tonys for the producers mm-hmm. what do you get an oscar for i think also for the i think he won an oscar for the screenplay for the producers oh, okay don't quote me on that guys won't <laughs> we'll talk about it when we get to that year <laughs> okay and you and you do your research yeah when i actually research Mel Brooks. okay <laughs> Um, the documentary film Woodstock got three Oscar nominations, making it the most nominated documentary film in Oscar history. Cool. Mm-hmm. And I've seen it. Me too. No. I usually have not seen the documentaries that are nominated for Oscars. Yeah. Well, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> what? Well, it is an interesting where if that was number five, right? Yeah, like, it was so the a lot of people Oscars. had seen that documentary that year. I'm sure that, That's was, very that true. was a year in first for That's that as true. well. That's true. That's very true. Um, this was the only time since the second Academy Awards that all five nominees for Best Actress were first-time nominees, as well as the last time that either lead acting category had all new nominees. All right, so a few films had multiple nominations. Both Airport and Patton had ten nominations each. Love Story had seven nominations. And then MASH and Tora, Tora, Tora had five nominations each. And the only ones that had multiple wins, Patton basically did a sweep with seven wins, and then Ryan's daughter had two wins. So that's pretty much it for background. Do you have any information from 1970 you'd like to share with with the class? No. Okay. Then let's talk about these movies. Up first is Love Story, directed by Arthur Hiller. Synopsis. A boy and a girl from different backgrounds fall in love regardless of their upbringing, and then tragedy strikes. <gasps> it was written by Eric Siegel, who also wrote the best-selling book. 
Eric Siegel originally wrote the screenplay and sold it to Paramount Pictures. While the film was being produced, Paramount wanted Siegel to write a novel based on it to be published on Valentine's Day to help pre-publicize the release of the film. And when the novel came out, it became a bestseller on its own in advance of the film. Wow. Isn't that crazy? That is an interesting story. I always thought it was based on the book. Yeah, it was a very popular book, so let's make a movie. Not the case. Nope. They were like, you know what? This movie would make a good book. Why don't you release that first? And then people will be pumped for this movie. movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it worked because then people were... That was one of the most anticipated films of the year by far. That's interesting. People were very excited about it because of the book, you know? When did it come out in in uh, comparison to the book? Do you know? No, I don't know. Release? Okay. Okay. Um... It's funny thing. Uh, Roger Ebert defines Ali McGraw's disease as a movie illness in which the only symptom is that the patient grows more beautiful until finally dying. <laughs> That's awesome. What did he give this movie, by the way? Um, I don't think he liked it. Classics, is it. No, it got generally pretty bad reviews. Okay, Most that, critics were like, "This is trash." <laughs> but uh, but audiences loved it. The growing audiences, yeah. No, which is good. That's, that's fair critics shouldn't dictate box office no i think i think a lot of times there's a pretty big gap between what critics determine are the best movies of the year and what audiences that's, have chosen that's the actually best that's, very true. that's very true so right off the bat in love story uh the two main characters oliver and jenny are are repulsive I don't like immediately just knowing, you know, everything that has been said about this movie, like, oh, it's a classic romantic movie, like all this, you know, jazz, everybody older than us, I feel like love loves it. Um, I was just like, I don't understand why in the first like 10 minutes of the movie, because yeah. these people are so annoying to me. Uh, they're just being smart asses to each other. It's like not cute. I understand like maybe at the time that was a little different. You didn't see a man and a woman behaving like that on screen like maybe well here's my argument but to that okay yeah going off of that point is that i feel like so in our last week we were watching movies from 1940 and we watched like the philadelphia story yeah. and i think like the relationship you know between katherine hepburn and Cary grant yes. in that movie is like what this movie was aiming for was like trying to do, sure. like that antagonistic but flirty but like they're kind of like always sparring with each other yeah but see that's cute like no i know like it doesn't would, work in like this i sense. would be into that this is like if she talked to me like this i'd be like okay bye like right it wouldn't be like oh i have to pursue this she's leading me on you know she's playing hard to get I'd be like right i really don't like being around you so <laughs> right. I'm, I'm gonna continue to not do that Right. <laughs> I think like what it came across to is me is was like if real people in real life were trying to emulate the kind of like bantering and classic Hollywood romantic comedies, but like were too unintelligent to do it correctly. That's, hey, that's not fair. They were both they were both going through college. Was the person who wrote that script though? Like I don't know. Uh, you know what I'm I'm saying that's how it felt to me. I didn't feel that they were dumb. I felt like they weren't pulling off witty banter, though. Well, that's true. I don't think, but probably because it wasn't written very wittily. I know. I'm not saying them as people. I'm saying the script, like, it didn't convey witty banter the way I think oh. it was trying to. You're not to. referring to the actors. You're referring to the characters? Right. I'm referring yeah. to the characters, oh, yes. Well, it's, it was hard to tell. No. I, was, I mean, I, I was referring to the characters. I thought you were referring to, like, you know, on-screen chemistry. Well, they don't have any of that either. <laughs> <laughs> um, they sure don't. Ellie McGraw, like, 
was it did she get a best actress nomination she was nominated for best that's actress. fucking crazy yeah because she was not good at all she was she's one of my biggest problems with this movie yeah because she's really bad yeah i don't i don't know like starting off with the whole like i don't want to be around her like that that does change she's she becomes like a fine person to me but as far as an actress goes, Allie McGraw playing Jenny is just like, was there no one better? Like this movie t- <laughs> to me, this movie felt like it was made actually. So it's, so it's interesting that all this work went into it. Like they wanted to make a movie. So they made the, the uh, screenwriter write a book t- in preparation, but like, it didn't feel like a lot of time actually went into this movie. It felt very quick and dirty for me, but like mm-hmm. not in a good way. So yeah, like even as far as the casting goes, like Ryan O'Neill was fine. But mm-hmm. Allie McGraw, some of the other like uh, minor characters were just like Tommy Lee Jones. Whatever. Oh, I love Tommy Lee Jones. <laughs> like, but, like who? Like Tommy Lee Jones. Like, and sure, I don't know if it's you know coming from where like obviously we were we know him as an actor now, and this was just like a very early small bit part in his career. Mm-hmm. But like he captured me more than like his like Ryan O'Neill's roommate. Yeah. Oliver's roommate, who was on screen probably more time than Tommy Lee Jones, but like I don't know what purpose he served. Like it was just yeah dumb like little dumb uh, scenes, but uh, I mean the rest of the cast was like honestly his Oliver's dad was great, like yeah. great. The mom we didn't really get to know very well. Uh, uh, Jenny's dad was phenomenal. Like I loved all these parts, but like for for being love story and being basically about these two people, Ellie McGraw just did not hold her own, in my opinion. I would agree with that. Um. I do kind of feel like it's, you know, with these films, I think this is going to be a common theme of, like, what I saw when I was watching them. But we're talking about films from 1970, which is kind of, like, right at the beginning of the new Hollywood era movement, whatever you want to call it. Like, where the style of filmmaking was really changing and, like, what movies were was being redefined. Sure. And I think well, that... during the golden age of cinema. Right. Um... And I think that a lot of these movies kind of, like, show some of those, like, growing pains, though, from how Hollywood was changing. And I think that Love Story was, like, really trying to be kind of a new Hollywood movie, but it was dealing with very, like, old Hollywood tropes of, like, this, like, love story. And it was very melodramatic, and it was very, you know, kind of over the top the way that, you know, older movies have been. But then they're trying to marry it with this, like, young, hip couple, and they, like bicker and they you know and i think that it just didn't really it doesn't gel well i don't think that it you can just see the seams a little bit too much i can that actually makes a lot of sense to me that's an interesting perspective because i can definitely see a studio head just being like oh we want to make this because like this is generic this is schlock we know it'll work Mm -hmm. but like hey do what those uh do what those new kids are doing you know what i mean right try to try to you know get that audience in because right. we'll get the we'll get the older audience for sure, mm-hmm. and the like couples. Well, you know, we'll get that audience. Right, let's, it's gonna be a date movie for sure. But let's just try to get like you know the the hip crowd in too, you know, mm-hmm. and, and be progressive. That's interesting. I like that take. Absolutely. Um, I feel like we can't talk about love story with talk without talking about the line. The line. Love means never having to say you're sorry. I don't remember that one. Okay. Well, you like explained it to me because, and I still don't understand that. Ever. I explained it to you. Okay, so I forgot exactly what I said, but to me, like that line, I love, like I love you, never means never having to say you're sorry, is about that. Like, I forgot what did I say? I think you said that it meant, 
Um, you don't just say you're sorry. You show that you're you show sorry. that you're sorry because like you are in love. Yeah, exactly. Like you guys are, you know, you're you love each other. You are a thing, you know. And mm-hmm. I think obviously you say you're sorry to everybody for common things like bumping into them, everything else. Like you know what I mean? Just random things. You say you're sorry to everybody throughout your life. Yeah. But like being in love with someone. You don't just say you're sorry and get away with it. You say you're, you have to show that you're truly sorry. And it's, it's often like maybe it's not even the words you say. It's just your actions. So See, I think that's like that's a beautiful sentiment. And I just don't think that comes across in the line that but they chose. I know, but I think with, given the situation, because it's at a point where they get in a fight and he storms off and she storm or she storms off. She storms off. And, and he goes looking for her, can't find her anywhere, finds her locked outside of their apartment because she forgot her key. Um, but you know, he's, he drove her off. He was being a, f- he was being a jerk. Per and usual. For her. Per, yeah, you're right. You're <laughs> right. When it comes to daddy issues. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah. He was being a jerk. And, um, you know, I, I do think, you know, you get fe- like, you know, you get angry with one another, you're fuming and she, ca- like they both came down at this point. He's concerned. Like his anger is out the window. He's concerned about her. He wants to find her mm-hmm. and apologize. And she, you know, got upset and she came down and, you know, at the end of the day, they just realized, like, they're not going to worry about this tomorrow. So, yeah. But what about then when he says it to his dad at the end? Because it's to me that same thing. But that scene read to me like he was still mad at his dad. But it seems to me if he's saying, you know, you just have to prove that you're sorry. Like the fact that the dad came proved and the fact that he was reaching out the entire time. He wasn't reaching out the entire time. He invited him to that party. but he didn't realize that. So, like, like you got to be fair. Like, he honestly, truly believed that that was not his dad inviting him to the party. Like, we understand that as an audience because we get a little bit more information than the character. But, like, sure. I think it's the exact same thing. Also, his wife just died. So, like, I don't expect him to do a complete 180 on his dad and hug him. In fact, I actually appreciate that they didn't do that. Yeah. Like, that they didn't just move on. But, you know, with him saying that line to him, to his dad, that... All he's asking is for his dad to show a little support besides just words or besides just coming to his hockey game and saying he did a good job or a bad job or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like just commenting on random things that don't really matter in this life. But rather, like he would he would appreciate if his dad would just like focus more from a father figure role and, and develop a relationship with his son, rather you know, and, and really see how he's doing rather than just have him meet the standards and, you know, yeah. set forth by him. So it's. I get that, and I get if that was the intention. I just don't know if the movie really conveyed that. Because for me, the entire time watching the movie, I was just like, your dad's not that bad. Like, you're really being a dick to your dad for no reason. Yeah, but I've, that's the, I mean, but I feel like that was, inten- like, that is intentional by the movie. Like You think so? Yeah, I feel, I feel that's, like, relatable, I think. And maybe yeah. like I don't want to say it's just a father son thing like and be like that, but like I totally get that I really do. Okay. So it never for a moment confused me. Like I didn't like I didn't respect Ryan O'Neill how he was treating him. Like I didn't, but like you can understand from his point of view, like and not also getting his entire history, but being able to put some yeah. pieces together that he just does not have a very good relationship with his dad. His dad never tried to be, never tried to be more than just the guy's father, but like in a very uh transparent kind of way like the typical like i'm just i raised you up put a roof over your head right and i'm putting you through college like you know he never i don't think he noticed you know that his dad truly did care for him i don't think his dad necessarily put forth that but like i feel so many times you hear about or see 
that fathers later in life realize that they may have made some mistakes during their children's life mm-hmm. and they try to amend that later or they do it when they become grandparents Cats in the cradle sure sure or they do it when yeah when they become grandparents and they mm-hmm. just they get their second shot so i just feel like he wasn't there yet and after seeing his son you know go through all this i feel like it just kind of brought him around to you know to to realize what's really important around him okay that's fair so like that's i know fair. it didn't do all of that justice right but i almost felt like it was like treat your audience like there's you know intelligent kind of okay view where you didn't have to see all the pieces that's fair but again i don't think that plot line matters to a lot of people i think it would connect with the right people who can relate you know what i mean i mean i think that plot line is way more interesting than the the titular <laughs> love story you know <laughs> like I mean, personally <laughs> i mean at the end of the day i would have to agree with that um but a lot of people don't necessarily see it that way probably you know? it is called a love story Okay, so what some other people thought about Love Story or think about Love Story. Um, currently, the Rotten Tomatoes audience score is 75%. Critic score of 57%. Ouch. Um, but it has been honored by the American Film Institute on a couple of their lists. Really? Yes, on their list of 100 Years, 100 Passions, a.k.a. the best love stories. Seriously? It, it ranks at number nine really <laughs> crack the top 10 how um yeah i don't that's you'd have to talk to the american moments like who votes on that i really don't know how they get those lists hopefully it was a poll of just like i don't think so i think it has to be like See, that's, uh, that's, movie that's, people that's too bad and on their list of the 100 greatest quotes sure i get that love means never having to say you're sorry came in at number 13 hmm. the craziest bit of information i have for you so the box office, like I said, it was the number one movie of 1970. It made $136.4 million. Adjusted for inflation, it is currently the 37th highest grossing film of all time. Wow. Yes. That's very, that's fascinating. Yes, I thought so. Yeah. I thought so. Where does uh, Fast and Furious 7 rank on that list? Um, I could look that up for you, <laughs> but I'm really not okay. sure. Then moving on, we're going to talk about MASH. MASH. <laughs> oh, I didn't think that is a thing. <laughs> <laughs> Suicide is painless. See, I thought that song would be nominated for best song, but it wasn't. We should play that at the end. Okay. Um, <laughs> MASH by Robert Altman. Synopsis. The staff and... The staff of an army hospital in the Korean War find that laughter is the best way to deal with their situation. <laughs> okay. No, okay. Sorry. <laughs> Some sass in that. Um, it's loosely based on the novel *Mash*, a novel about three army doctors by Richard Hooker. In the DVD audio commentary, Altman describes this novel as "quote pretty terrible and somewhat racist" because the only major black character has the nickname Spearchucker. A nickname which was kept in the film. <laughs> and I would say that there's only one other black actor with lines in that film. And she is being assaulted by our main characters. So I'm really glad Robert Allman got a hold of it and made it less racist. Um, the, <laughs> the first. I like how you just let off with that. <laughs> like, I, I figured you're going to bring this up in a point. But you're just like, no, this has to go in the introduction. I think I was pretty angry when I was putting these facts together (laughs) so 
The first take of the shot where Hot Lips is revealed in the shower didn't work because Sally Kellerman anticipated the reveal and was already laying on the floor when the tent flamp went up. To distract her, Robert Altman and Gary Berghoff entered the shower tent and dropped their trousers while the shot was rolling outside. While Kellerman was staring at them, the tent flap was raised, resulting in her genuine surprise and shock when she realized what had happened. So if you're wondering how they got that like really genuine look of sexual harassment, it's because they were actually sexually harassing her at the time. <laughs> it's not laughing matter. It's just like the way you're putting it. Uh, some other... These are less angry fun facts. Okay. <laughs> 14, the 14 year old son of Robert Altman, Mike Altman wrote the lyrics to the theme song. Suicide is painless because of its inclusion. in The subsequent TV series, he continued to get residuals throughout its run and syndication. His father was paid $75,000 for directing, but his son eventually made about 2 million in song royalties. Damn. So obviously, as we all know, mash, the movie inspired the hit series mash, which still holds the record for the most-watched series finale of all time. 125 million people watched the finale in 1983, a time when only 83.3 million homes had televisions. Yeah. Well, most DVR'd it, so. Uh, nope. <laughs> <laughs> they were watching it. <laughs> yeah. So I think that, um, yeah. In case you couldn't tell by my, by my fun facts that I included... I uh, was deeply upset by this movie. It's probably the most misogynistic film I've ever watched. To be fair, you don't watch a lot of misogynistic films. Not if I can help it. But (laughs) going into this, I wouldn't... I really thought I was going to... Like, this was going to be my favorite movie from this year. You know, I hadn't seen it before this. And I really thought that this... I was like, this is going to be one of the great ones. Because everybody... I love the TV show. Like, I love... You know, everybody talks about how great it is. Robert Altman's supposed to be so great. And, like, it's going to be fantastic. And then it it was so disrespectful to women, to people of color, to uh, gay people. To It's just, like, it went and checked off a list of, like, all the minority groups it could offend and then offended them. And then expects us to be laughing about it. And I just find it... Deeply upsetting, I guess. War is hell, Devin. I I understand (laughs) that. But, like, (laughs) and here's here's my rebuttal. Like, so, like, the synopsis is saying, oh, war is so terrible, and they're dealing with these atrocities, and so they have to find laughter to help them cope with it or whatever. That's great if that's what the movie was doing, but we see so little of of the operating scenes where they're actually doing their work. So little of that is shown. So I don't feel like you ever actually feel the weight of what they're experiencing as doctors. It's all just them contriving ways to sexually assault women or how to, like, make a big joke out of someone thinking he's gay or how to, like, go play golf. It's not at all. You just I never felt any weight at all of what they were experiencing. All I felt was them being antagonistic for no clear reason. Yeah. So. To be okay to to take the other side really quick and not necessarily addressing any singular problem with it, but your specifically your example of you don't feel the weight. I think at this point in time we have had plenty of war movies, sure, like plenty, and we are now like we're in the height of Vietnam when this movie's being made, right? Mm -hmm. Like in fact, without like we we talked before, without the 
t- uh, title in the beginning of the movie saying that we were in Korea, it very much could have felt like Vietnam. And that was intentional, for exactly, sure. Exactly, exactly. So I think the weight was just already there, and this was like one of the first, I shouldn't say one of the first, but this is a war film that took a comedic aspect f- like and was one of the first to do so, where it didn't just address the fighting or anything else like that. It tried to give levity to the situation or how people got by. Now, I just wanted to say that in, in relation to your, your, your weight thing. That's fair. Because I do agree with you, but I do think that, again, with the time, what people were going yeah. through in this year. They already felt the weight. The, yeah, they already felt the weight very much so. Now, God, I remember this movie being funnier as well. So I, I had actually already seen it. Um, and I was astonished at how much, at how offensive it really was. Yeah. And not in a huge, like, you did catch me laughing. Because mm-hmm. there was just some absurdity, like you know what I mean, and, and like that's fine. I was, I'm talking about obviously addressing the misogyny and the. Mm-hmm. I didn't laugh at the racism. That's ridiculous, but uh, <laughs> it was so absurd. However, like this movie did not have to do that. It could have no. just been these guys goofing off and having fun, but not at the expense of these minority groups, right? Or these women. Like it would have done so well for itself if it didn't go down these alleys and then go down too far as well. Yeah. It could have just been this witty banter, even though, you know, even if, it, even if it just focused on the males or whatever, it could have just been this witty banter that had nothing to do with offending anybody. Um, right. I don't, I don't exactly, I can't recall that. I mean, I used to watch the show all the, t- all the time as a kid. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying this exists in the show, but I don't know. Right. Like, I don't know how much the show, yeah because again memory it's been a long time yeah memory fades right um but i will say at the end of the day like when this film ended as i told you i i don't think it had the heart that i remember the show had in fact i didn't feel very much heart in this at all they they tried very briefly at the end yeah it was like all of a sudden at the end they were like it's almost like we have to wrap this movie up here's like this semi yeah like five seconds of yeah of relief that that, you know they're getting out of this war but like Again, that probably even would have been more effective if we had seen more weight in this movie. If we had seen more high stakes or, you know, war as hell, not just extreme sarcasm and misogyny and racism. Right. Because, I mean, I just feel like the movie didn't give us any reason to care about um, Donald Sutherland and Elliot Gould's characters. Like, there was no redeeming qualities. And then I understand that they were saving lives because they were doctors. But again, we saw very little of that. And all they do is go out of their way to make other people's lives bad. Like Robert Duvall's character, they're offended because he prays is essentially like what makes them dislike him in the beginning. And then, okay, he's rude to a nurse in one scene. Uh, it's, I think it all actually stems from, like, I think that he, they found these things annoying, right? They did. They found these things annoying wherever they're coming that from. That in a time of life. war he wanted to pray? No, no, no. I know. No, 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 no. I, I do understand that. But it was really when he put the blame of that soldier's death on that little kid. That <laughs> the little kid, he was like another soldier. Well, well, I'm sorry. You're right. He was another soldier. He was, he was a young soldier. He was younger, sure. When they put it on him and that kid was, or that guy was really upset. Like, that's really the turning point I for their going against him. Okay. And so what I'm saying is, okay, so maybe there's some precedence there that he deserves to be taken down a peg or two. Does he deserve to be sent to be dishonorably discharged from the army and sent away in a straitjacket because that's what they did to him yeah and 
furthermore, Hot Lips. Hot Lips who am? Y'all remember her. <sighs> she does literally nothing to deserve the way they treat her. She essentially, like, they, you know, don't care about rules or regulations or taking anything seriously, and she does. And she, again, is this woman in the army who has worked her way up to being the head of the nurses. And she's just trying to do her job and do it correctly. And they take that to mean that they have free reign to embarrass her and sexually harass her at every turn. And it's, I just feel like it's not given any sort of justification. No, there's no justification for it. Not that there would be justification for it, but like she does nothing to deserve it and they continue to do it. And then all of a sudden she's just like one of their friends and she's like sleeping with the other, the other guy and like cheering them on at their football game and everything's just like cool. And I'm like, I just don't think that's what happened. And in fact, you know, after they set up an entire giant rigged thing to see her in the shower and have people lined up in chairs to watch it. And she goes, and I mean, and that scene is what really bothers me too, is that she has real genuine emotion and is like so upset when she goes to their commander and is like sobbing and is like, this is what happened. He's like, I don't care. Get out of here. Basically. Yeah. And that was supposed to be the last time we saw hot lips in the original script. Then she leaves. Like basically like, if you don't like it, you can leave. And then she leaves and we don't see her again after that. But then Robert Altman really loved the emotion that she brought to that scene and so he kept her around for the rest of the movie and inserted her into other but scenes. But then, like, dumbed her down. Right. She never came back as, like... Right. As that... Like, with the cheerleading scene you, you just mentioned, she was so dumb. Like... Right. In a way she'd her, never been dumb before. made her as a butt of a joke. And... Okay. Yeah. See, that's the thing. I was like, there was... So there was no, like, thought behind, like, oh, this woman has just been, like, deeply traumatized. But now... Because I like this actress, I'm just going to put her into these other... Like, you know what I mean? I just feel like he didn't understand what he was... He liked the emotion that she brought to that scene, but didn't understand, like, the weight of what that emotion was. Do you know what I mean? By then just inserting her into the rest of the movie. Absolutely. Well, she's like, oh, she can act, but, like, was not listening to really what the character was saying. Right. Yeah. So it just makes me feel like Robert Allman, like, wasn't aware of what he was doing. Yeah. And I think I looked it up. I was thinking like, oh, maybe he was just young and you know dumb because mm-hmm. this is the start of his film career. Mm-hmm. But no, what did we find out? He was like, he's like forty, almost forty. Yeah, yeah. So it's just like I don't know. And I feel like I don't want to say what he did was okay, but I do feel that he took a better stance as far as female character goes in 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 his later movies. Like, in fact, I almost every that. movie pre- you know coming after this one. See, I can't speak to that because I've seen it, and after seeing this, I have no desire to watch Robert Altman movies after yeah, this. You're honestly. gonna have to watch a couple. So, I mean, I'm sure I will, but better do better. That's all I gotta say. I, I, I don't know. Don't quote me, but I think he does. But uh, yeah. I will say it is unfortunate. The one silver lining of this, because I think this film is trash, like utter trash, if you ask me. <laughs> okay. But the one silver lining in this movie is that it gave us one of the greatest television series of all time. It did. It so. absolutely did. It absolutely did. Yeah. <laughs> I don't really know what else to say, honestly. Yeah, I would say if people if people right now think that we're being crazy and you haven't seen MASH in a while, go rewatch it. Yeah, definitely give it a visit. And I think you'd be surprised like, by how much it does. I really like Donald Sutherland and I really like Elliot Gould. Mm-hmm. And it's just like 
even just the fact that they were okay with all this like tarnishes well the fact that, that so much of it was ad libbed like yeah exactly we they essentially out, like, didn't follow the script at all what, like 80 percent was ad libbed yeah and it's just when you find out what these guys are saying it's just it, that's unfortunate right it's like okay so. exactly and the direct so so if 80 percent was ad libbed the director was getting what he wanted and that's where it's really unfortunate that this is a robert altman movie at the end of the day mm-hmm. anyway let's move on you're, you're a little upset so <laughs> fine um, the Rotten Tomato audience score for MASH is 83%. Critic score of 87%. Which is all far too high. Male critics. Yeah. Yeah, probably. It's been a predominantly male, or male-dominated field, at least at that time. Yeah. Still, probably. I wonder what Pauline Kael said. <sighs> I don't care what Pauline Kael says. What is... Wait, why? I just don't agree with most of the things she says. Why? Because I just... I don't know. I just don't agree. Like, every time I've read something that she said about a movie, I'm like, that's dumb. <laughs> Damn, okay. I just don't agree with her views on movies. Okay, Devin. Um, so the American Film Institute on their original list of the best movies of all time, MASH ranked at number fifty six. And ten years later for their anniversary list, it had bumped up to number fifty four. Wow. On their list of the greatest comedies of all time, number seven. What are we missing, like, contextually here? Like the time period like what are well, we missing i think like, a lot of it has to do with the fact like obviously this was supposed to be about vietnam it was coming at a time when a lot of people were feeling very anti-war and i so i think this movie that was very like these people not taking war seriously spoke to the people that the thought anti- war sure. was bad and that's what i but like years later though like stay you know i don't know given that like i do i fully i, I do understand that i do understand that mm-hmm but to give it a list is like it's such a great movie in general, like not in context. Like I can't agree with. I d- yeah, I, I don't, don't think this is in the top two hundred no. movies ever made. You know? No, I would agree. You know, like it's just I don't know. Anyway, um, it was also on their list of the best songs. Suicide is Painless ranked at number sixty six. Um, that year in nineteen seventy, it won the Palm. Thank you. At the Cannes Film Festival. So for Altman, yeah. And uh, it was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry in the year 2000. So in the year 2000. In the year 2000. (laughs) We still thought this movie was worth preserving. That's what scares me. It's like, again, I understand the context of its time, but. I think, though, really, like, if we look at, like, the way that we view rape culture today is like vastly different even from how we're viewing it in the early 2000s that's fair do you know what i mean no no, no, that's that's super fair and i think obviously i think that this movie i think it probably if people do rewatch it or whatever else like what we know now about sexual assault in the military i just can't see this movie being lauded any longer do you know what i mean i just think that we've now was when we've caught up and maybe even like 10 five years ago we weren't sure no that's fair Let's take it out of the registry, Devin. Let's do it. I let's don't know do if you a, can do that. Let's do a national treasure. You know, let's get Nick Cage on board. Oh, I thought we were just going to like have a petition have to, or something. We're going oh, like no, no, no. to break in We have to break into the national film registry, take out MASH, and, uh, well, I'd probably just keep it because that, that seems like it'd be a pretty cool thing to own. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say burn it, but then it's just like, I don't know if I can do that. You're like, but it's history. It we should preserve it. That's the whole point of preserving it. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess we'll just leave it in there. Fine. For now. <laughs> the box office for a match was $81.6 million. All right. Next up is Airport, directed by George Seaton. It 
synopsis, a bomber on board an airplane, an airport almost closed by snow, and various personal problems of the people involved. Ooh. God, (laughs) I want to rush out to see that one. (laughs) Directed and written by George Seaton and based on Arthur Haley's 1968 novel of the same name, it originated the 1970s disaster film genre. It is also the first in the airport film series. It was produced on a $10 million budget and earned over $100 million. Wow. So that's a good day. Yeah. Uh, it was based on actual events. The incident of the first domestic terrorism and the bombing of Continental Airlines Flight 11 from O'Hare to Kansas City on May 22, 1962, which blew up over the Iowa-Missouri towns of Centerville and Unionville. The bomber's name was Thomas Dottie, who lived in Kansas City. Hmm. Uh... I included this one here because you were right. Transglobal Airlines was the name of the fictional airline for the film. And for many years, it was not unusual to see props from the movie with the fictional TGA logo and other universal films where airliner interior scenes were shot. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Right and a little Oscar history for airport. Ever since the introduction of the MPAA two years prior, this film was one of the few G-rated films to receive an Oscar nomination for Best Picture. The others were Oliver, which won in 1968, Funny Girl, Fiddler on the Roof, Sounder, Beauty and the Beast, Babe, and Toy Story 3. Wow. What do you think about Airport, Kyle? I thought it was great. I really enjoyed it. Um, I had never, I wouldn't, you know, without this, po- this is what's great about this podcast. My favorite thing about it anyway is getting to watch movies that I probably would have never seen in the first place. Um, but I... I enjoyed Airport immensely. I was with it from beginning to end. I did there. I don't think there was a single thing I didn't like about it. I'm not even kidding. Like I really, really enjoyed this movie. I thought the performances were awesome. I thought it looked great. Um, I loved the way it just bounced around these different characters throughout this airport. In fact, like it kind of like if <laughs> to go back to Mash real quick. Mm-hmm. If Robert Altman would have directed this movie is the only way I think it could have honestly been better. Like if <laughs> Robert Altman brought his visual style that he established in MASH and then, you know, obviously throughout the rest of his career. And this very much feels like it could have been a future Robert Altman film where it's like it bounces between these different characters and these different things happening around this singular area, much right. like Nashville or, you know, other things. Um, But yeah, so like. Honestly, that's the only way I probably would have enjoyed this movie more, and it might be one of my favorite movies of all time. As if Robert, no, no, if Robert Altman (laughs) directed, like if that was the movie that was made, Uh, I no, I truly enjoyed Airport. I think out of the whole list of films we're looking at for this year, uh, it is the most rewatchable film. Like it's the one I would revisit Uh, uh, first out of out of the rest of these. Uh, Yeah, it was so funny. Um, it did some really cool things with editing that I really liked with just bringing in like all the callers. Cause there's a lot of phone conversations happening cause these people are in, yes. all, in oh all different God, places. I that. So like the screen would then like fade into like the other person would come in for ha- on half of it. Or later we saw like circles of guys when yes, they were in the cockpit. Weird little shapes. I just love it. Like there was just certain elements to it that I just thought were so interesting for the time that, mm-hmm. you know, you see a lot of filmmakers maybe playing with formula these days who might, it's almost like, after watching Airport, I can see the inspiration for some things I've seen 30, 40 years later, mm-hmm. which I think is I think is really interesting. I just I never heard of it as a bouncing off point, but I clearly feel in some way it was inspirational to other films and other filmmakers because it just did some things like really well. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was I was certainly surprised. 
certainly surprised like and i was with the plot <laughs> i mean i was just i was i was in yeah i was in it hooked me it really did and i thought it was funny and epic in a way and mm-hmm. grand and i just i can't recommend airport more yeah i would have to agree like i would say like going into like going into this i wasn't super pumped about a lot of the films for this year yeah honestly yeah. and like this was when i was like ugh, whatever i like what is this i don't what is this you know they're just handing out oscar now yeah like so like no one made <laughs> movies this year i don't know but i really enjoyed this movie like it's just fun you know and it's i mean there but there's like some really good serious moments and some very good um dramatic performances and i think it's really they take a giant cast and they handle it so well because i mean i think it'd be really easy to mess that up because there's so many people but i mean i think that you got a good enough introduction to all the characters and you cared about all the characters you know even the bomber and that kind of stuff like i still cared about him i still care but i you know obviously didn't want the people on the plane to blow up and that kind of stuff but like Mm -hmm. i think they did a really good job of handling a cast of that size yeah and i think that you know there were a lot of funny parts like i said there were a lot of really good dramatic parts that were well done dealt with abortion yeah, like, they mention abortion. They mention, you know, it's dealing with a lot of serious things. And I also really, because, I mean, it's just like this big epic and the, the action is all well done, too, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, And then, but they don't really, it's not like they sacrificed any of the more dramatic elements that they'd already included to give you a happy ending. Because when the movie ends, like, the wife of the bomber is still, like, so dis- I think her performance is amazing. It's incredible. She's still so sad. And then they have um the whole thing with... Dean Martin and uh, Jacqueline Bissett's relationship and like you know through most of the film it's like just them on the plane and then she's in danger and so you care about their relationship but then at the end it's like oh yeah no guys he has a wife I don't know if you forgot like I liked that they didn't gloss over that you had to kind of like reckon at the end with his wife being there and that's the thing too like I thought it like it just handled like this is the at the point you know in the I guess late 60s 70s like when kind of it became okay to like get divorced like it wasn't such a taboo issue to discuss right um so you know that i mean because clearly two divorces are coming from this movie we watch one unfold mm-hmm. and we know the other one quite it's possibly probably will happen. yeah you know what i mean and uh yeah like it's just it handles it so well and it's not like it makes it a bad thing we're supposed to hate these characters because of it you know it's right it just it treats it like it's an everyday thing that the audiences are probably clearly going through but they haven't really it hasn't really been established all too well in hollywood yeah i mean i think i mean before you know with the with um the Hayes code you know if you were an adulterer like when we watched 1940 the letter she was an adulteress and so she had to die at the end of the movie yeah that was like a rule <laughs> right that was a rule but in this case you know dean martin is the hero of that movie and yet he is and an adulterer one, yes he is and we know that from the get-go right we already know that you know he's he's cheating we introduce his wife as soon as we meet him Right. But we know he's seeing somebody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I think that, too, like, you know, looking at the movies, like, obviously, I think MASH didn't work on a lot of levels. But I think one of the main reasons is that it, a lot of that is, like, can stem from the fact that it's two of its time, that it doesn't translate anymore to today. But I feel like Airport, it was kind of a throw. Like, again, I think you're seeing some of those stretch marks going from old Hollywood to new Hollywood. But I think that because, you know, it keeps that G rating, it's just very, like, I just think it ages much better than probably any of the other movies we're talking about in this episode. 
because like you were saying, I think it is the most rewatchable. I think it is the one that stands up the best to time because it is more universal in a way. Okay, yeah. I mean, again, like, I don't want to say it because, I mean, there's, like, no people of color in this movie. But, like... That's with, not true. They're, with, like, real roles is what I'm saying. Well, well, no, but, I mean, they put them in an important part. I thought, but they're like, still just background well, characters. I know, but we have, like, the, the chief of the airport. Like, the chief officer of the airport is a black man who does have lines. I know, but like, he, do we know his name? You just you didn't use a name. Yeah, it was, like, Ro- it was Rogers. You don't know his name. <laughs> it was He's Ralph. not a it named character. Leo. It was something... <laughs> sure he had a name i'm just saying he was well, they said he it. was in like two scenes they said it though but i i actually thought it gave presence like unlike to other things it gave presence to minority characters in this movie i think it was doing it in the way that movies did back then where it's like look we put them in the background they have real jobs they're not just criminals i don't what, what yeah. more do you want from us no fair enough fair enough it's just where like, you want them to talk to people i guess on the scope of the movies we watched though it was like refreshing Sure, there were see. more black people in this movie than in the yeah. other movies we watched, yeah. for sure. Yes. And they weren't named Spear Tucker, so. Fair. Very fair. But yeah, I would say, like, people who, again, think that we sound crazy for <laughs> for praising Airport, I would say go rewatch it because I think you'll have a lot of fun with it. Or maybe just watch it because I doubt a lot yeah, of people Yeah, probably have, a lot like, of people honestly. have watched it. <laughs> but it was on the best, uh, like, it was a top grossing film of that year, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. And maybe more. And maybe more. Mm Mm-hmm. What does that mean? We'll get into... Well, let's get into it. So, the Rotten Tomato audience score of 54%. What the fuck? Not great. Not great. Critic score of 80%. Okay. So, I don't know. I don't know. Um, American Film Institute did not honor it on any of their lists, but Burt Lancaster is ranked at number 19 on their list of 100 greatest stars. Probably not for this movie, but... At number what? 19. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so the, for the box office, it made $100.5 million adjusted for inflation. This was the equivalent to $558 million in 2010, and it is the 45th highest grossing film of all time. That's incredible. So we have two movies from 1970 that are on the list of the highest grossing movies of all time. Top that's, 100. That's awesome. Yeah. That's really great. Yeah. I do think, like, I was reading all this stuff about it, and, like, the studios were, like, this is trash. Like, there's no one's going to come see this movie. It's so dumb. Like, Burt Lancaster was like, this is the worst piece of junk I ever made. Like, don't. And they, like, they really gave it, they were just like, this isn't going to do anything. And then it was like one of the biggest movies of the year. And they were like, I guess we'll make three more. It, the actors involved thought it wasn't going to, I thought Burt Lancaster was like great in this. I mean, he was great. In it. I think I have, I have his actual quote. And like, I don't know. I just thought he was such a good character to honestly to like follow and, beast the lead in this movie actually the direct quote from Burt Lancaster is i don't know why it was made it's the biggest piece of junk ever made maybe he's referring to the plane <laughs> no because that boeing is like did you see that tiny little hole yeah. from the bomb it is a well-made plane yeah that was obviously sponsored yeah by boeing, boeing. boeing gave him some money they definitely <laughs> gave him some money for that but yeah so i feel like maybe this is you know we talk about movies that are like oh, oh yeah. and dude and George Kennedy is awesome in this movie. Yeah, George I do want to mention him. He's he's not exactly the biggest part, although he is, I guess, in every other airplane movie. Yes. So getting increasingly. He gets his due promoted. later, but he's great. He's great in every scene he's in in this airport. Yeah. Oh, here I have a quote from Pauline Kale about it that you won't agree with either. She demissed it as bland entertainment of the old school. Quote, there's no electricity in it. Every stereotyped action is followed by a stereotyped reaction. I liked it. 
<laughs> I did too. And I, but I, I actually, I can see kind of her point. I can see her point, but I can, I also think, you know, because she's up against things like mash and five easy pieces. That's just it. Like, that's what I'm saying too, is like, I think maybe the time, like why it was dismissed more at the time is because we were seeing like new films. Like we'd never seen yeah, films like wasn't that before. Anything. Right. Whereas now we've seen all those movies and we're like, yeah. you know, sometimes I just want to watch yeah. a disaster movie. Like, exactly. I don't, <laughs> uh, so yeah, I think it holds up. Next up, we have five, speaking of New Hollywood, we have Five Easy Pieces, directed by Bob Raffleson. This is the synopsis from IMDb. I just warning you, it is not accurate. A dropout from upper-class America picks up work along the way on oil rigs when his life isn't spent in a squalid succession of bars, motels, and other points of interest. That's okay. like the first ten minutes of the movie. Yeah. And then things drastically change. Yeah, I would have to agree with that. Opened to positive reviews, critics' consensus on Rotten Tomatoes states, It is an important touchstone of the new Hollywood era. Five Easy Pieces is a haunting portrait of alienation that features one of Jack Nicholson's greatest performances. And a little fun fact, 30 years later, Nicholson performed a scene in the movie about Schmidt that directly drew from the chicken salad sandwich scene um, from Five Easy Pieces. Nicholson's character in About Schmidt, an emotionally down, downtrodden retiree, in contrast, humbly accepts the waitress's no substitutions rule. That's hilarious. Wait, uh-huh. is that in the final film? Uh, no, it's a deleted scene okay. from About Schmidt. That's hilarious. Mm-hmm. But any th- facts about like the movie itself? Uh, no, not really. No? Nothing? I didn't find any of it that interesting. They made a movie. <laughs> they did make a movie. <laughs> And now we're talking about it. Yep. 40 years later. 47 yep. years later. Ooh. <laughs> Do you have anything to say about it? You lead with this one. I'm leading with this one. Um, you know, it definitely, we're talking about movies that kind of um, were in between New Hollywood and Old Hollywood. This one is definitively a New Hollywood movie. It was, um, you know, Jack Nicholson obviously like kind of became famous off of easy rider and then which is one of the definitive movies that changed hollywood and i think that this movie is very much in that same kind of vein it's very um you know it's shot differently than most movies be there's you know unlike the studio system it's not all filmed on sound sets and then it's like actual location shooting uh jack nicholson's character i wouldn't even call him an anti-hero because there's literally nothing heroic about him. <laughs> That's so true. He's genuinely dislikable, but then, I mean, because it's Jack Nicholson, he's somewhat likable. <laughs> I mean, like if anyone else had played that character, I just don't think that it would work, but he's innately charming in a way that yes, you can put is. up with him. Yeah. And it's, you know, as I was watching it, I was kind of just like, this is annoying. Like, I don't care about this stuff. Like, it's not really my kind of movie, I would say. But, you know, as I was reflecting on it, the more I think about it, I think that it did have some very interesting things to say about class. Um, and in that respect, I do like it because, you know, he's he comes from an upper class family. He was a piano protege. And then he kind of which I wish they had maybe gotten into it more like what went on between him and his father, because it's left like very vague that they had hmm. a falling out and whatever. And then interesting he he leaves and basically is like pretending to be blue collar 
and like living with his blue. Well, he's not. He is. Like I'm saying pretending because he clearly can go back home anytime he wants. If he like ran out of money, he could just go home and it'd be fine, you know. Mm-hmm. But he's, you know, working on an oil rig and he's like dating this woman who um you know, she's a waitress and she's clearly like I don't want to say lower class cuz I'm not trying to be like she is from a lower class than the yes. other people that he used to live with. And she but and he's living with her, but he treats her so terribly and he treats all those people so terribly and it just kind of felt to me like he's like oh i hate my like bougie family so i'm gonna go and like be a real person and a real like man of the earth and like work with my hands and blah blah but he hates those people i feel like he clearly has like a disgust for those for lower class people in the way that he treats his girlfriend the way that he treats his friends and then when he comes back to his family's home because his father's dying you know he meets his brother's girlfriend and like in two days, like is in love with her and is because she's rich and she is everything else that he grew up with. And I feel like it's really saying, you know, like it's kind of all these people that these like hippies and whatever else, this like counterculture that was happening in the seventies. This is almost like a indoctr like, it's just like making fun of them. And I don't know if they like got that. It's like, you think that you want to be like a real, like you're real and everything needs to be like genuine and authentic, but like you wouldn't, that's not what you actually want. That's interesting. I see. Okay. So I took it as, so he's this guy who's just like, he's never going to be satisfied. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's just kind of figuring out his place in life. Like many of the l- young people, probably coming to see this movie right um obviously not trying to like mirror situations with some of them but he is kind of rebelling against whatever he is currently a part of so he you know obviously yeah he's this he's this child prodigy although he seems to be living in the shadow of his brother at least mentally because he and throughout this movie there he gives hints to like he was never as good as him and maybe that is perhaps where his not hatred but like his resentment for his father comes into play, right? Maybe he was never given a choice on what he actually wanted to do. So when he escapes that life, he goes, yeah, and he lives this kind of like more blue collar life, like you put it. But then living in that for a while, he just grows to resent that as well. Like he, I don't think he ever has figured out what he truly wants to do. Um, I think it's funny because I think he's very much, he's, a more realistic version of like the Oliver character from love story. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So I think in fact with the relationship with his father, I think the only reason Jack Nicholson goes home to see his father is because he actually knows like he might lose him soon. Whereas before, like that wasn't a concern of his, right? Like whenever you're away, you're just thinking like, Oh, everything's hunky dory. Like they're fine. You know, regardless of how they feel about me, like they're doing whatever they're doing. They're okay. Like if you don't think about it that often, there's nothing to really worry about. But now he's faced with this problem firsthand again after kind of like rekindling things with his sister briefly. Um, and he knows he has to go see him. But then, yeah, once living in that lifestyle for a little bit, things don't go out his way. He remembers what he didn't like about it. And, he, you know, and even he's rejected. So rather than him rejecting everybody else, like he's finally getting rejected, too, which has not been his thing throughout the course of this movie. Everybody wants him in a way. Except for. I mean, he even kind of gets her for a minute. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and I think, you know, culminates in the end where, you know what? He's like, well, I'm going to go back to fuck this. I'm going to go back to this blue collar lifestyle. But then even during that, 
even during that, he calls an he calls an audible, and jumps on a semi truck, leaving his girlfriend his Ray, pregnant girlfriend, his pregnant yes, his pregnant girlfriend Ray, at the truck stop in the car waiting for him to return, and we don't know where he's going next. Mm-mm. And I think that is an extreme circumstance, but however, I feel like it's absolutely relatable in a lot of ways. Like he feels stuck. He doesn't. He's not happy yet. He's not satisfied. I don't think he ever wants to be a father in this story. Mm-hmm. And he goes on to whatever the next thing may be. And yeah, he's completely unlikable. But I think in a lot of ways, but he's also very relatable. With everything you're saying too, it is still kind of what I was saying, kind of this like, um, I can't think of the right word, but they're kind of like shining a light on the fact these people who are like, I don't know who I am and I don't know what I want. And it's kind of like, but look at like the lives you're destroying in that quest to find who you are. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I think they're like, it's in a way showing how selfish sometimes that journey can be because he has no regard for how he's treating Ray or his sister or like any of those other people. Mm -hmm. It's all just like what I want. And he clearly isn't concerned with how, what he's doing is affecting their lives. No, because I, again, and I would agree with you that he's just not a good person. Right. Like he doesn't take these things into consideration. He's just, you know, he's, he started off doing something that I don't think he really particularly enjoyed. And the then, piano. Yeah, the piano. Yeah. Um, even though to the average person, he was probably really good. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But he'll never be satisfied. He'll never be as good of his as good as his brother or perhaps father or whoever else. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I just don't think even at this age, which I think I think like if anything, this movie just says and not obviously in the best way, but it's just like you can still you could it's okay to still be figuring it out i guess and even though he doesn't he abandons you know what i mean he doesn't ex- it's not like a like lesson like follow these steps right right because i don't think he learns any lesson no in that no, movie. No, no no but i think it's okay for the audience to just be like you know it's okay to still be figuring this out you know but like pay attention to how you treat people <laughs> yeah yeah again i'm just i'm not saying it's like a it's a moral lesson you right. know, for how to do it i'm just saying yeah i would I would say the movie's not really trying to teach any lessons. I feel like it's just trying to no. depict one version of this. Yeah, kind exactly. Of story. Exactly. But in a way that, again, we haven't seen like this, this captured probably like more the everyday man than a lot of the stuff. We've mm-hmm. seen, you know what I mean? Where he wasn't super privileged, although he did have privilege. He had a lot of privilege. He just wasn't going to accept it. Right. Yeah. I don't know. But again, and I also think, you know, it's one of those things, too, where, like, yeah, it's really easy to go live your life in, like, a trailer and work on an oil rig and do whatever else when you know that if hard times really hit, you can always just go back home. Exactly. They'll take you back, you know? Exactly. No, I I, I 100% agree. 100%. But, I I mean, at the end of the day, too, yeah, this I felt like this movie was very different for its time. Well, yeah, it's certainly. But when you're watching it, like, alongside these other nominees, it definitely felt um fresh mu- yeah much fresher than those movies. yeah um it's just a whole different type of movie like there's there's not really a structured plot we get kind of random scenes uh intercut within here mm-hmm. um just to establish like more of who the character is rather than uh, rather than advancing the plot i should say um just different things that just i don't know that work in the end i would say this is probably my favorite movie of this year but not like i said before it's not the most rewatchable movie 
No. Like I, I appreciated what it did, and I appreciate, I appreciate how it told the story. But, I mean, pff, airplane is still the. <laughs> Airport. The most, or yeah, shit, <laughs> shit, shit. Uh, airport is still the the most watchable and enjoyable, in my opinion. Yeah, I wouldn't say like this is like, oh, fun. I'm gonna watch five yeah. easy pieces. You know, like it's. Yeah, because it, it requires more thought than that. It really. does, and I d- actually do think it's really cool for like, you know, because exactly when comparing it to the rest of the movies on this list for this year, it is far different. So it's it's almost I'm just kind of glad and appreciative that the Academy put it up against these other four movies mm-hmm. yeah that's true mm-hmm. um okay so what other people thought about um has a rotten tomatoes audience score of 84 percent and a critic score of 87 percent it wasn't included on any finalists from the american film institute but it was included among their 1998 list of the 400 movies to be nominated for the 100 greatest movies but it didn't get on there um, but it was selected to be preserved in the Library of Congress um, in the National Film Registry in 2000. And it made $18.1 million in the box office. Which, adjusted today, makes it the 278th <laughs> most <laughs> highest grossing movie of all time. It's not on the list. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. We ready to talk about the winner, Patton? Bye. <laughs> I'll do that better. <laughs> let's move on and talk about the winning movie for 1971 Patton by Franklin J. Schaffner um, the synopsis it's the World War II phase of the career of the controversial American general George S. Patton that's pretty accurate as far as the synopsis goes <laughs> can't argue with that um, attempts to make this film began in, began in 1953 wow yes Eventually, the Patton family was approached by the producers for help in making the film. The filmmakers wanted access to Patton's diaries as well as input from his family members. However, um, by unfortunate coincidence, the producers contacted the family the day after Beatrice Ayer Patton, the general's widow, was laid to rest. Oh, they thought like poor timing. Yeah, like I don't, they, I don't, they hadn't realized that she had just died, but like mm-hmm. that's when they were out. And so then after that encounter, the family refused to provide any assistance to the film's producers. So in the end, screenwriters Francis Ford Coppola and Edmund H. North wrote the script based largely on the biographies *Patton* or *Deal and Triumph* by Ladislas Farago, and *A Soldier's Story* by General of the Army Omar Bradley. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. So General Bradley... Okay, so, like, I mean, obviously he was telling his own story, but yeah, a lot of, you know... That's what I read, like, a uh, lot of it, because they said, like, they got a lot of information from Bradley, which is, like, can be a little suspect, because, like, by all accounts, those two men did not like each other very much, you know? Yeah. So, um, so the film opens, like, that opening scene is probably the most famous scene from the movie. Um, with his with Scott's rendering of Patton's speech to the Third Army, it's set against a huge American flag. Uh, Coppola and North had to tone down Patton's actual word and statements in the scene, <laughs> as well as throughout the rest of the film, to avoid an R rating. Oh no shit! Wow. Yes, they said okay. one of the like key ones because he says something about fornicating in a fornicating is not the F word he used in that speech. <laughs> <laughs> um, according to Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein's book, The Final Days, Patton was Richard Nixon's favorite film. Cool. I'm sure it's a lot of people's great, you know, favorite film. Like, what, we don't just need to put it on Nixon. I'm just telling you, Nixon liked it. <laughs> he was a fan. Don't let it hurt you. Don't let it hurt your, your 
I mean, maybe. I mean, I'm not saying. I don't think Nixon's greatest fault was his taste in films. You know what I mean? I don't know. I just think that's <laughs> a weird thing to say. Like, I was talking oh, about Hitler's that, favorite films you know last week. <laughs> president we had. Uh, yeah, it was just, it's his favorite film. I just feel like that's a, it's a kind of a harsh way to. I just thought it was film. interesting. Okay. They didn't let me know who else enjoyed this film. Okay. The internet just told me about Nixon. All right. Well, Dick Nixon loved Patton. Yep. But you should too. Should we? I really enjoyed it. You didn't? No, I liked it. Um, again, in general, I don't care for war films. In general. <laughs> Good one, Devin. Did you write that one down? <laughs> no. I just came off your dome. Yeah, it was yeah. unintentional. Um, but yeah, no, like I'm not a, I don't like war movies. Really. Um, <laughs> you know what made me, what I was thinking about this movie you know, we were kind of like laughing because back then, you know, like the credits all come up before the movie. Mm-hmm. And so they're going through all the credits and there's not a single female name anywhere. Yeah. Not in the cast, not in people who worked on it, like nothing. Yeah. But it made me think um, when I was in college I, in my screenwriting class, my screenwriting teacher made this joke that he said, you know, men should never write for women, which is why I mentioned only write war pictures or prison movies. That's fascinating. I was like, well, maybe they took that advice. They're like, like we're we're making a war movie. We don't need women. I mean, honestly, I don't know what role a woman would have played in this. Do you know what I mean? Like, Like, historically accurately, yeah, it probably would have been, like, shoehorned. I mean, obviously, he was married or whatever, but this was... Yeah, but this is not... Yeah, not about that. It was just about his time overseas. Because they talk about him writing letters to his wife or whatever. Exactly. And and in, like, sweet ways. Right. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like he was a womanizer or anything. It's just... Yeah, th- like in World War Two. Besides, like that's what I, I joke well, like. Oh, we're clearly not going to see a mash unit, which we did, and there were we did, women there, but they didn't women, speak. They but didn't, <laughs> exactly, they did not have speaking lines. So, yeah. but it it for the time it made sense. Sure, it did. Yeah, that was just a funny thing that I thought it, about. It was while we were. there was not not. I mean, even in the even in the above the line like credits for production, there was just no women. No, nope. which you know, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? Exactly. I guess we'll just have second wave feminism. That's what that's what they do. We'll did. just settle for second wave feminism. Okay. Um but what did you, you what did you think of Patton though? Like I know you said you don't really care for war pictures. I think for, for what it was, um, for a biopic about a general World War Two, I thought it was well done. I liked the way um it kind of felt like more of a modern biopic in the way that it kind of just focused on one short period of his time of his life instead of, you know, like his entire life. Apparently the greatest period of his life this one yeah in the end that's what you referred to it yes as. yeah but i mean i think like a lot of like now we see that a lot more where biopics are just about certain portions of a person's life yeah whereas i think before people would be like oh if we're gonna tell the story of pat we gotta this is when he was born and then he was you know for sure whatever else for sure um so i liked that they, they just focused on the thing that he's probably the most famous for um i think george c scott's performance is great i think that he's fantastic um and I thought it was I thought it was well done. I thought it was interesting, you know, again this is hap- this movie came out in 1970 when there was a huge anti-war feeling um in America and I think that this movie I kind of was like going back and forth of like where it was going on that on that spectrum because you know, in some ways it's very pro-war. Patton clearly was a pro-war person. Like he loved war. Um but he was very pro that type of war. Like, you know, with the ending, he's talking about, like, these innovations in weaponry and how that's really changing what war is. And it's not just people fighting. There's no glory in it anymore. There's no 
whatever else and how that's not what it's supposed to be it's not just people you know like pressing buttons and destroying lives strategy right like that's how he saw it so i was like that's kind of a condemnation of the vietnam war you know saying like that's not how we should be fighting war that's not you know yes all this stuff but it also was very like he was like we don't need diplomacy we don't need whatever which was kind of you know what other people were calling for instead of war so i thought you know, it's interesting, and it's interesting that the movie did so well, too, because obviously there were people who were still oh. pro-war. Um, but I think that in a way this movie could, it probably, it, like, I don't think it was anti-war enough to appeal to people who were against the Vietnam War. But I think when you look back at it retrospectively, I do think that it is saying more than just, it's more than just a pro-war stance. I think it's much more complex when you look back at it from today's point of view. Amen. No, I would I would absolutely have to agree with that. Um, as far as like just the movie as a whole goes, I will have to agree. Like I think it was an excellent uh, example of how to do a biopic. Um, George C. Scott really led it amazingly. I the opening scene is absolutely fi- fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's iconic. Great. It's iconic, but like you know why now? You know after watching this movie. Um, but yeah, and I do really appreciate that it wasn't just about the battles. In fact, like. This movie is what two two hours and fifty minutes. Yeah, I'd be surprised if we see twenty twenty five minutes of of action. That's true. Uh, I think you know it's it's mostly a, like ex- again it's mostly a biopic and it's it's learning about the struggles of this guy who you know who goes from obviously having power to have it kind of taken away and being abused like he's he's constantly shuffling with who he is and there's this romanticism of of war. Mm-hmm. that i think is kind of like one of the coolest aspects and how yeah he's not he's not just like pro-war like i want to go in and fight like he brings history to it he he's clearly a very intelligent man and it's kind of cool to just see that in action i guess in a way um obviously i don't really know how the real Patton was or who the real even Patton was as far as like i was not alive during that time mm-hmm. but it was it was just kind of cool to see it bring this side of a human to life who maybe was just glorified in the headlines and we get to know a little bit about who he was as a man too um i really respect kind of who he was after viewing this like i mm-hmm. i don't know i think it, it hit those fines really well and there's sometimes you're like oh i don't agree with that well, then there's sometimes like, I do agree with that, but obviously that's the complication. No human is perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really think putting a general at the forefront, a general of an army of a, of a very important war. Right. Uh, who, yeah, again, we mostly just saw in the headlines or hear the battle stories of, but seeing who the human was behind those stars, uh, I don't know. It was really far more interesting of a movie than I thought we were going to watch. Again, I mm-hmm. thought we were just going to watch a typical war picture that, yeah, you know, was in color and, and cinemascope, <laughs> and it was, you know, oh, it was a big grand adventure. And to see how many scenes were just him kind of dealing with the politics of the situation and or, I don't know. Yeah, I agree. And I think, um, like, what you're saying, too, I think that this movie benefited from coming out when it did. Again, um, going back to this theme of, you know, old Hollywood, new Hollywood, I think that because, you know, things were changing – they had the opportunity to make him a more complex character than I think he w- if they had succeeded in making this movie in 1953, I think that would have been a much like 
toned down obviously and like much clearer like this was a hero and you know i absolutely agree with that whereas this movie was kind of like yeah he was a hero but he was also like maybe he wasn't the greatest guy and like me he was a he was a human being and he had flaws and he had um you know strengths and that kind of stuff and i think that but he wasn't loved by everybody right yeah, at the same time you know and he wasn't trying to be like you know what i mean like yeah. he was trying to win a war he wasn't trying to be popular but i think that like i think coming out when it did allowed them to do that a little more i think that if they made a movie about Patton today i think we would see even more shades of characters sure. like within him and we'd hear fuck a lot more probably <laughs> probably they probably wouldn't care about that r rating yeah. so much <laughs> oh i forgot to mention like earlier in the show i meant i prefaced earlier the show that we get to it later in the oh, show yeah. but we skipped right over it mash was the first hollywood movie to drop the f-bomb right um that's what they say but i think like some other people have uh oh have challenged that yeah okay never mind then <laughs> there's some other way i forget what it is like someone i think they do say it in okay. another movie before edit that. this out me <laughs> uh no but uh, i you know that's that is so true i think this would have been a typical hoorah war movie in 1956 right. whereas now they did get you and i don't think you know I think what makes this movie so great is the fact that, yeah, it wasn't just a typical war picture. And George C. Scott, like, just killed it. And regardless of whether, you know, awards mean anything or not. He deserved it. (laughs) 100% earned this. Uh, God, like, I don't know, you know. You think he gave a better performance than Jack Nicholson? I do. I love Jack Nicholson's performance. I do. Like, Mm -hmm. I really do. Um, However... Jack Nicholson was playing a part of a culture he was 100% a part of. Yeah. Whereas, you know, George C. Scott, I really think, inherited a character fully. And really, again, just killed it. Like I think you really got it down. Apparently, though, um, Pat, the real George S. Patton, had a very uh, high-pitched voice. Really? Yes, which is why he swore so much to, like, compensate... That is hilarious. Well, see, yeah, and I don't really know who Patton. Yeah, like, I don't you know, know a lot I mean? about. So Patton. I, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying like, ah, oh, he really nailed Patton, but he really the character like, of who Patton was in that movie. Yeah, yeah. He, he really drove a role home, and like, when you base something obviously on on uh, nonfiction, like, it's important to make these people real and really represent them. Um, and I felt I never felt for a second this character wasn't a real person, and I don't know. I feel like he's just, he's honestly like, he's honestly become like, I mean, I don't have my own list like <laughs> AFI, but he's probably in my top list of just characters I've seen on screen. I'm not even kidding. I really love Patton in this. I really love George C. Scott's performance. I would agree. I think that's really what makes the movie. Cause again, in a lot of ways it is just kind of, you know, yeah, you know, this is what happened yeah. and we're showing you what happened. But I think that obviously like his, his performance is what elevates it to being interesting, you know? Yeah. To being something special. Right. And the photography of this movie is, is incredible too. Shot oh in yeah. seventy millimeter, like I, it was some of it, like the the high definition transfer we watched was just, I mean, great. Mm-hmm. And it was on Netflix, it's so on if Netflix, you do get yes. a chance, yeah, um, check it out on Netflix because re- I think it's really worth your time. Uh, and it was two hours and fifty minutes, and although we broke it up in two different sittings because Devin fell asleep, <laughs> uh, it was understand. We were watching it. Well, to be fair, we were watching it quite late. Yes, like that is what I will say is fair. Like I, I. Listen, I love this girl. <laughs> I do. We've been together six years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I cannot count on two hands how many times I've seen her up past midnight. So 
<laughs> it is. It honestly is. Is it not? <laughs> and excluding like special occasions where we're on vacation or whatever. Yeah. Like I do not see this girl much after midnight ever. <laughs> it's and hard so for me. She did, yeah, she fell asleep at like twelve fifteen. It was fair. Okay, it was fair. <laughs> no, but uh, again, besides like breaking us breaking up in two cities, this I don't I don't feel. I don't know if you feel differently. I don't feel this movie felt like nearly three hours. I really don't. Um, I think while I was watching it, I was like could cut some of this stuff out there's <laughs> okay. some stuff we could cut out <laughs> like okay there's a lot of just like shot to shot of tanks i'm like yeah i get it there was a lot of tanks and they're going through mud like okay cool <laughs> like we don't need to watch <laughs> this for like 10 minutes you know everyone's entitled to be wrong so <laughs> it's fine it is fine yeah well uh, i guess like when it when it showed in theaters there was an intermission i think is what i read yeah because uh, okay originally that um that speech that's at the beginning was meant to be to play after the intermission i believe and i guess like george uh c scott really interesting yeah so george c scott was refusing to do that scene because they were talking about putting it at the beginning he was like it doesn't belong at the beginning like that's gonna that's he was refusing to shoot it if they were gonna put it at the beginning of the movie so like the director told him it was gonna be the end of the movie so that he would film it and then they put it at the beginning of the movie (laughs) You know, okay, and I love it at the beginning. It is, I think it, it really adds something extra to this movie. It really does. I love that it's the opener. It's I a really great do. introduction to him as a However, character. However, it would make, it, it makes total sense that it was originally supposed to go at the, be- or at the beginning of the, inter- or at the end of the intermission. Yeah. Because, yeah, we're getting like the future patent. Right. Then rewind back, and then we get eventually get to that where that patent was, which happens all the time. Yes, sure. But I could totally see it as being like an amping. But then it goes amping up. Yeah, because like that's really act. it's not like the end patent. It's like a little before the end patent because yeah. then but, he's like stripped of his. But you can see exactly thing. where it goes though. Like right, because he gets he gets the job as the commander of the third army. And right. I could totally see where an intermission would go in, and then we open right. up. Like I, I would love that. In fact, I would love to even see that. That Hell, is cool. Put it in the movie twice. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it is too like. Like, maybe today people could watch this movie and not know that yeah. George Patton ended up with a command of the Third Army. But I'm, I'm pretty sure even in 1970, everyone knew sure. that George Patton was sure. going to end up. You know what I mean? It wasn't like it was a spoiler to put it at the beginning. Yeah. And I think it's bold to just open up with that and not get oh, it's any great. credits and just jump right in. I read a thing, too, when they showed it at, like, um, like for military people, like, because it just, like, it starts with a call to attention with, mm-hmm. like, no thing that a movie's starting, like, soldiers would just stand up they thought it was an actual call to attention uh so they would all just like that's hilarious yeah that's really cool so they did show this in vietnam i guess so yeah that's interesting yeah okay well Patton. Patton. i'd highly recommend it yeah um let's see if other people would rotten tomato audience score of 94 percent and a critic score of 95 percent Cool. So that sounds That's the pretty on this list so far. Yeah, right? pretty yeah. pretty recommended. Um, the AFI lists on the OG list of the hundred greatest films, it's ranked at number eighty nine. Um, it did not make it onto the anniversary list. Oh damn! But on their list of the greatest heroes and villains, uh, George Patton ranked at number twenty nine. Cool. Okay. As a as a hero, I don't know if you're yes. about that. And uh, villain, if you're looking at it from a yeah, Nazi when they show it in G- the German <laughs> AFI, or I guess the GFI. No, no, they're okay. Stop. You're saying Germans are Nazis. I was, see. I, that's why I said Nazis. I know, but I'm saying like GFI no. instead of A. Okay. NFI. Germans are not bad people, Devin. I know. 
okay, says the German. Like, <laughs> calm down about it. That's not what this is. I'm just saying you can't associate all Germans with Nazis. Okay, I'm sorry. Not all okay. Germans are Nazis. All right. Like, none of them, hopefully, are. <laughs> well, like, some, there's Nazis in America, so. You know what? True that. Um, it was preserved at the National Film Registry in 2003. And it made 61. After MASH. Yeah. That is. Okay. <laughs> all right. Now I'm really pissed. All right, go on. Uh, it made $61.8 million domestic. Which translates to number 267 on the all-time box office. I don't know. I don't think the list. It wasn't on the list. Okay. It wasn't on the list. Okay. That's it. Um, We don't really have any other notable films that came out in 1970 that like got snow. I couldn't find any that were like, oh, what an omission. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't really look. To be fair, I didn't look. I'm sure there's some great stuff. Um, Obviously, judging by these top five, it was a good year for films, in my opinion. Oh, okay, because I feel the opposite. Oh, bad year. Terri- <laughs> I feel well, like you're included. You're just mad about Mash, right? Love, love story. Oh yeah, nominated I forgot for about multiple love story. awards. I forgot about love story. You're right. And Mash, whatever. I don't mind that being nominated for because people didn't understand that you should respect women in 1970. That's fine. It was like, a transition year. You know, 1970 was a transition year. <laughs> <laughs> it was i think it very much was um but okay so what movie do you think should have won best picture you act surprised that i this is like the point no, of this podcast I know, I know. <laughs> i'm you know what <laughs> i am completely fine with Patton being the winner and yeah. maintaining that that uh maintaining that title i would I would say I would agree. I think that maybe five easy pieces is would probably be like my second choice if I had to pick it. But I think that like the the type of movie that five easy pieces represents is better defined by some other movies that did win best picture like Bonnie and Clyde. Sure. And that kind of stuff. So like um, I think those movies can go ahead and carry that mantle and okay. five easy pieces. It was an honor to be nominated. But I would agree that Patton yeah. was probably the best film of 1970. So really, our job is pointless. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're sorry that you're listening to this podcast. We just won't post this, this episode. No, you know what? <laughs> bonus. Bonus app. 1970. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed. Okay. So per usual, we came in listening to the best song winner from that Academy Awards, which was For All We Know from Lovers and Other Strangers. Classic. Clearly. <laughs> But <laughs> I think we're going to go out listening to Suicide is Painless because it's the only good thing about that movie. Not Love Story? Not the Love Story song? That wasn't a song. That was a score. Oh, I like that song, though. That's the main one. The main theme. I found that score so annoying. Okay. I liked the score for Patton. I did, too, actually. Mm-hmm. Let's, uh, yeah, what are we going out? Suicide? Yeah. And uh, next week, we're, guys, we're going to do our very best to tell you about films from 1931. Cool. <laughs> Not promising anything. Until then. Until then. Bye. Through early morning fog I see Visions of the things to be The pains that are withheld for me I realize and I can see That suicide is painless It brings on many changes And I can take or leave it If I please
the game of life is hard to play I'm gonna lose it anyway The losing card I'll someday lay So this is all I have to say Take or leave it if I please.